Morning, everybody. Those of you who are new here, I'm certainly we'll have some visitors here for the baby dedication. I'm Chris Dirks, one of the associate pastors, and, and we're doing ba- baby dedication here this weekend, and I'm also starting a series, a three-week series I'm going to do on parenting. It just uh, works together and ties together so well, and so I just want to take a couple of minutes to say some things about parenting before uh, the parents are all going to introduce themselves, and we'll see some really cute pictures, and I know that's why most of you are here. Uh, children are our most valuable asset here at Southland. I mean, there's no question about it. It's not, and it goes without saying, but, but some of the most obvious things are some of the things that need to be said again and again. Um, the most valuable stuff we have here at Southland is not buildings, it's not programs, it's not papers we've written or, or uh, you know, retreats we've, you know, developed or any of that sort of stuff. All of that stuff is just about people. It's about ministering to people, winning people to Christ, and kids, this is our future, all right? And so when Jesus comes back, you know, the buildings aren't going to be left. He's, he's not going to say to us, you know, wow, nice programs, you guys. Wow, nice, uh, you know, nice new addition you build. Wow, nice, you know, music style. He's going to talk to us about what we did with people. And people, this is what church is all about. And so our kids, this is actually right here. I mean, not just here, but everywhere, but this is representative here. But this is our most important and most valuable harvest field is our own kids. I mean, we believe in evangelism, no question. I mean, we've got Donovan Friesen as our evangelism pastor, and we believe in reaching people out in the community for Jesus. But we, the first thing we have to do is reach our own kids. This, God is not giving us kids to populate hell. Amen? So he gives us kids for us to raise to be with him forever and ever here on the earth when heaven comes down to earth. But so kids, this is, we've got to reach them first. Hugely important. And the sad thing is right now here in North America that we are doing an atrocious job. Let's just be honest about it. We're doing an abominable job of raising godly kids. Uh, the statistics right now, uh, New York Times did, a, uh, did some research a couple of years ago. They, looked at, they said if you take all the teenagers, everybody who's a teenager right now in, uh, in North America, only 4%, 4 out of 100 of them will believe in God when they're adults, Okay. Uh, George Barna has done uh, research on Christian families in particular. He's done uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, surveys, many, many families. And uh, they have found that uh, Christian kids who grow up in Christian homes, who go to church pretty much every week growing up, uh, two out of three of them will leave God and leave the church when they're in adulthood. Okay? So we're not even close to batting 50%. There's been others, uh, other surveys done that show that the number might be more like uh, four out of five that leave the church. Um, but whatever it is, we're losing our own kids. How can we minister to the, to the lost out there if we can't even keep our kids for God? And so uh, we just think kids are hugely valuable, and that's why we do baby dedications, and that's why I'm doing a series on parenting. It's just absolutely massively important. Now, the good news in this whole series, and the good news for a baby dedication, like now, uh, some of them are looking at me like, <gasps> four out of five. And uh, the good news is it does not have to be that bad. That's the good news, okay? I was raised in a family with four kids. Uh, all four of us today love Jesus. Uh, all four of us today married to spouses who love Jesus. All four of us active in the church. And you say, oh, whoop de doo da ding the Dirksons, okay? Um, I don't say to brag. There's nothing to brag about there. We got tons. I was thinking of tons and tons and tons and tons of names. Families in this church, every kid, whole families living for God, Whole families passing on godliness generation to generation. Some of them up here on stage right now. And so the good news is it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, two out of three leaving the faith, four out of five leaving the faith. 
okay? We can do better than that. Now, I do want to say this. I always got to put in this caveat. Um, some of you might be here today, and you uh, have grown kids, and some of them are away from the Lord. This is not about a guilt trip on you. We're not putting a guilt trip on people in this series. We're not putting a guilt trip on you, this baby dedication. In the end, there's still no, de- there's still no guarantees, I mean, you can do everything right, and in the end, kids still have to make their own choices, and some kids, even with the perfect parents, will, will, will leave, and they won't follow God, and, and there's nothing we can do about that. But overall, we can do a lot better than one out of three, one out of five, amen? And so the number one most important thing, if you want to raise godly kids, you want to know what the most important principle is? You can't raise what you're not. You cannot raise what you're not. And I want to say that to you guys up here on stage. You cannot raise what you're not. You want to raise godly kids? You don't raise godly kids just by showing up in church once a week and dropping them off at youth in the middle of the week. That's why we're at one out of three, one out of five. You can't raise godly kids who love Jesus unless you are a godly person who loves Jesus. And it's a real thing. It's not just window dressing on your life. The greatest gift you can give to your kids is your own personal walk with Jesus Christ. And so if you want your kids to grow up, there's no, I wish, I wish there was some kind of magical formula that on baby dedication day, we could bring these kids up here, we could do some kind of weird symbols and say some incantation, and 18 years from now, presto, they're all godly. But the fact of the matter is, it comes down to us. And that's why, actually, baby dedication would be more accurately called parent dedication. What's happening here this morning is not so much that we're dedicating babies to Jesus, we're dedicating parents to Jesus. And as we consecrate ourselves to God. He can work through us. And you know what else is some really good news? God has made kids to want to follow parents if the parents will show them something worthwhile following. Even if you have grown kids here today and some of your grown kids are away from the Lord, you want to know something? There is something deep inside of each of us and you know it. I'm an adult. Okay, we're all, most of us are adults here and you and I both, we all know that there's something in us even now as adults that wants our parents' approval, that wants to follow. If our parents will just show us something worth following, we'll follow. And if we will be godly, our kids, most of our kids will follow us into that. And so these, <laughs> very cute. Um, <laughs> these parents are going to introduce themselves now and then we're going to stand up, we're going to pray for them. But I want you to remember that they're up here today, we're going to pray for them. They are dedicating themselves to God, and then their kids will follow. Now, everybody, let's stand, and let's pray for these parents. We're going to dedicate them to God, all right? And if you feel comfortable, you can stretch your, your hands out. We often do that here at Southland. Stretch your hands towards them if you feel comfortable. And uh, I just want to pray for them and a blessing on them. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we lift up these parents on this stage here this morning. And Father, the first thing I pray is that you will fill them with your Holy Spirit, Like you did to the church in Acts, Father, we need as parents, they need as parents, the filling of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that bondages would fall, chains and shackles would fall from their lives, Father. I pray that that they would have the courage to reveal hidden sins and deal with their issues, Lord. That they will deal with their issues and that they will be radically set free. And Father, as they are radically set free, Father, I pray that you would give them a revelation of Jesus Christ and a love for you would be implanted deep in their hearts. A love for your word. Father, I pray that these parents are going to grow, that you're going to help them to grow in walking with you and trusting you day by day. Father, I know that you hear these prayers and we know that anytime we pray in line with your will, we know we have it. I know that this is your will, what we just prayed now. Father, I pray that as they follow you and love you, Lord, I pray that you will, that these kids are going to follow in right behind. 
And I pray that's going to be 100%. We're not praying for one out of three or one out of five. These kids on stage here, Father, we're praying for 100%. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, Jesus, they're all following you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Three-week series on parenting. And before I even talk about parenting, I want to talk to people here this morning who you're not a parent. Um, because the, the moment I, you know, we say parenting series, there's a whole bunch of people here who are not parents. You've either never been a parent or your, your kids are growing up and you're kind of past that stage, you, you feel. And so the moment you do something as specific as a parenting message series, you're isolating a group. And lots of you might just think, well, what's the point of that? I mean, I don't need that. It doesn't apply to me. And, uh, and you might even be wondering, I mean, parenting, it's such a specific thing, and, and not all of us are parents. Why not just do a seminar during the week? And we do many parenting seminars. But why not just keep it as a seminar? The parents can go to that, and on the weekend, you can preach a message that applies to all of us. And so I want to tell you, we do this very intentionally. We actually really believe that kids are our greatest asset here at this church. And we intentionally, every couple of years, preach from this stage to everyone all together. We intentionally do that to preach a series on family, even though we know many people here aren't parents right now. And so let me give you three reasons to you, those of you here today who are non-parents, why we do this and why this series should matter to you. First of all, if you're here today and you're a young person, you're 30s, 20s, or teens, and you're not a parent, one of the reasons you need to listen to this is because you're not a parent yet. There's a very good chance you will be a parent at some point if you're here today and you're in your 30s, your 20s, or your teens. And so what I'm doing, I want to do over these next three weeks is I want to give you a biblical foundation and I can show you some stuff that in advance that's going to save you a lot of grief. It'll save you a lot of grief if you know this stuff in advance. Uh, you know, pilots, when they teach pilots how to fly an airplane, they don't teach pilots how to fly with passengers in the plane. They teach them how to fly first and then they put passengers in there, right? And I get that, you know, being a pilot and being a parent are two very different things. I got three little kids. I get that as a parent, there's lots of things you've got to learn on the fly. There's lots of things you can't learn in advance. You can only learn by doing. But there are some very important biblical foundations that if you know them in advance, it's very just, again, lots of specifics you'll learn as you go. But there's some very important biblical foundations. If you know them ahead of time, it will save you and your kids much, much grief. I was raised in a godly home by godly loving parents. They did not read dozens of parent, parenting books. They did not have child psychology degrees. And they raised us. We love our family. And lots of stuff I learned from my parents with a godly biblical upbringing, I want to pass on to you young people who are here today that aren't parents yet, so that you too, I can pass on some of that stuff to give you a head start. Second reason why this matters to non-parents here today is that you can influence kids even if you're not a parent. Every single one of us here, you don't have to be a parent to be able to influence kids. I mean, every one of us here influences kids to some degree. You've got nephews and nieces. You've got neighbor kids, or you're a teacher, or you're, you're whatever. You're a kidsman worker. It, kids are hugely Im important to God. And I'm going to look at that in this message here today. There, But God just loves, passionately loves kids, and you can impact kids too. And there's stuff in this series that you can then catch a vision to, and even if you're not a parent yet, you can have a huge impact. And build up reward for yourself, treasure in heaven by impacting kids. And the third reason why this matters for non-parents, and this is the biggest reason why we preach parenting series here at this church on the weekend, not just in seminars during the week. And that is this, we are intent, we want to create an environment here at Southland where parents feel safe 
to raise their kids in a godly way. And in order to create an environment, we can't just talk to parents. We have to talk to all you non-parents because it's all, all of us are together in this. And our culture right now is making it extremely difficult on parents to raise them in a godly manner. Our culture makes parents feel afraid, ashamed, and guilty to discipline their kids, for example. You always, I feel it. I got three little kids of my own. We feel it. Parents, we feel it. Already right now, and, and the direction our country is going, we feel that pressure that there are certain things the Bible says we need to do that our kids need and it's good for them, but we feel like we can't do it or we're afraid. Who's watching? Who's going to get called? What kind of trouble could I get in if I do what the Bible tells me to do? And also the culture, there's this huge pressure on what are you training your kids? Political correctness and all this sort of stuff. And so our culture is making it hard for parents to parent properly. And we want to combat that here at this church. We want to create an environment in this church where parents feel safe to do right. Where parents feel safe. People aren't looking over their, their noses like this at, at parents when they've got to discipline a kid or love a kid or train up a kid in the way that, that they should go. And so I'm going to get you all to stand again, and we're going to read a commitment together, non-parents and parents together. So you stand, a little bit of exercise for you. I know you all had to lose an hour of sleep with the jumping ahead, but this is the sleep-in crowd anyway, so it's probably good for you to have an hour less. But we want to create an environment. I'm preaching to non-parents here just as much as to parents because I want us all to know the same stuff. That you know, oh, that's why these parents are doing that. Oh, that's why my buddy doesn't hang out with us as much anymore. He actually has to raise some kids now, and that takes time. And that's why these people have got to do that. And that's why these people have got to do that, because we're together in this. We're helping families. And so we're going to read this together, all right? I want you just to follow along with me. And you can read it with expression, all right? Can we do that? All right, here we go. One, two, three. We commit to supporting parents in their role as parents. We commit to encouraging parents to do what's necessary in order to raise godly kids. We commit to not judging parents as they struggle to do their best. We commit to praying for families and parents and children. We commit to setting a godly example for the children of this church. Remain standing, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. My prayer throughout this series, Father, is again that we can do much better than one out of three or one out of five of our kids following you in adulthood. We can do much, much better. And Lord, we just want to consecrate ourselves as a church here today. It's not just the parents, but the non-parents too, Father. We want to consecrate ourselves to building a church where godly kids, where we turn out godly kid after godly kid after godly kid after godly kid. And Lord, we want to commit to being a church where parents feel safe, where parents are encouraged, where parents are trained up, And parents know how to parent their kids properly. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're going to do through the truths in this series. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to look at some more practical stuff about raising kids and stuff. Uh, Today, I just want to sink some pillars deep in the ground. I want to sink some foundational pillars deep in the ground. I want to step back from parenting just a little bit before we get into some of the more practical stuff. And I want to look further back. A lot of People, when they get into parenting, when they talk about parenting, whether it's being a seminar or in a book or whatever, they, they get into the practical stuff too quick. I want to step back and look at some stuff that we don't always look at. I want to give this thing context. We've got to have context. Uh, why is parenting important? What's the heart behind it? And so uh, we'll get into the more practical stuff the next few weeks, but I want to look at three pillars today. I want to sink them deep in the ground and, uh, uh, that have to do with context here of the, the heart behind the family. And, and the first thing I want to say is this, that God really loves kids. 
He really loves kids. And of course, I mean, it almost goes like, duh. I mean, I didn't have to come to church for that, okay? And we all know that God loves everyone. God loves kids. Sure, he does. We all know that intellectually, but there isn't a person here today, including myself, we're not even scratching the surface. We don't really get how zealous God is about kids. He has a red hot, just a passionate zeal and an emotional attachment to children. And we have to come, we have to, by the power of his spirit, we have to kind of come into that and feel a little bit of that, that passion that God has for kids. So I could show you many passages in the Bible. I'm going to read you a sermon, a sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read it all the way through. I'm going to go back and pull some things out. But I'm going to read you a sermon that Jesus preached. And I want you to see, as I read this sermon that Jesus preached, I want you to see God's passion for kids is literally crackling in these words. And you're going to see his passion is so hot, he can flip between from kindness to anger very quickly on this issue of kids because he is that passionate about kids. So let me read this to you, and then I'll pull a few things out. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we could... We're not, but we could sit there, right there, and do a whole message, and that's very profound, okay? And I know we've heard it before. It's almost a cliche, but just think about that. Unless you become like children, you can't go to heaven. Anyway, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one, even one, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. God takes it very personally when you do something kind to a child. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around the neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I think if Jesus was preaching today, he'd get a lot of emails. <laughs> you ever think about that? Our pathetic, our culture's pathetic picture of Jesus, he's just this softy. He says it would be better to have a millstone around your neck and to be dropped in the ocean than to meet up with him if you've hurt a child. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He carries on his warning. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let me just pull a few things out here. Let's go back to verses five and six. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. God is sitting on his throne right now. It's a real place in heaven, real place in the universe. And his power is surrounded by armies of angels. Glory, majesty is awesome. I mean, all that stuff about God, he's holy. And generally, we would think of someone like that, so powerful, so awesome, um, that he would be remote from the affairs of human beings, that he would be a little emotionally distant from us. And yet we find this God, who right now is king over the universe, Okay, he's king over the universe, and yet we find him having a powerful emotional attachment to each child on the earth. He has a powerful emotional attachment. 
So much so that even as he sits on his throne and observes the affairs of men and women, human beings, okay, as he sits and observes the affairs that go on here on earth, he watches each and every one of these children. And if you will do any small kindness, another verse talks about giving a cup of cold water, but you're a soccer coach and you, there's a kid and he's lonely, he's an outcast, and you say a word in there to build up, build him up. Or you take in an orphan or you adopt or you do some little thing, cup of cold water in my name for one of these little ones. You do something for a little kid. You pray for a small child. Whoever receives one of these little ones, God on that throne with the army of angels and his holiness and awesomeness is so emotionally attached to children that you do one little thing like that. He doesn't miss it. He takes it as if you did it directly to him. I mean, so often I see young people, especially in their zeal, I want to get closer to God. I want to get closer to God. How do I get closer to God? You know, one of the most important spiritual principles for getting close to God is, if you want to get close to God, go where he is. Go where he is. If you will come out of your busy adult world and get down on a child, it doesn't have to be hundreds of kids. It doesn't have to be thousands. One kid. Make a difference in one kid's life. You get down onto their level and you listen to them. How often as adults do we just, whether it's our own kids or someone else's kids, we're just annoyed with them. Ah, don't bother me with that. You're bugging me. You're irritating me. But you come out of your busy, so important adult world. Who's more important than God on his throne? And yet this is the attachment he feels to kids. You come out of your important adult world and you come on to a, down to the level of a child and you listen. And you build one up. You encourage one. And that's, that's close to God. You are directly doing it to God himself. And you are storing up reward for yourself in heaven. Now there's a flip side to this though too, isn't there? I mean, this passionate love God has that if you do anything good to a child, he takes it so personally, he just loves it. He's very pleased with you. There's a flip side to that, and that is if you do something bad to a child, there's another reaction. And so Jesus says, as I noticed before, but if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, you trample on one, neglect one, ignore one, plant a seed of bitterness that will grow up in this Little kid not following Christ. You give him a bad picture of who God is. You do something like that. On the one hand, if you do something good, God takes it as directly to him. You do something bad, it's the same thing. He takes it as a direct insult to him. And so Jesus says, he's not joking here. This is Jesus talking. He says, it would be better. Great millstone around the neck into the ocean. Now, I want to help you think about that. Because we should think about God's words, right? So let me help you think about a millstone. Okay, there's a millstone. Uh, anywhere, the, the little ones were 130 pounds. After that, they went up to hundreds. This one would be more than 130. And Jesus isn't joking. He says, you don't want to meet him if you have disdained, if you've looked down, if you've trampled on a little kid. He said, better this. This is a picnic compared to what you, he will do to you. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, he repeats the warning. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You know, sometimes people, they don't like, oh, Chris, I don't like it when you speak about the wrath of God. Well, first of all, it's not me. This is the Bible, okay? This is Jesus talking. But people think, well, Chris, the God you preach about, he's just mean and angry all the time. This is not God's mean and anger at work. This is his love. It's like I said, it's flip side. It's the fact that he loves kids so much that enrages him so much when someone disdains one. 
It's like a mama grizzly bear. I always think of a mama grizzly bear. So when I think of God and kids and God and the people he loves, it's like a mama grizzly bear. I spent a few years tree planting in northern BC. Every year we got bear training at the beginning of the year, and I got tons of bear stories. You want to talk bear stories? We can talk bear stories. Grizzlies, black bears, I've seen them all, okay? And, uh, but one of the things we learned about bears, and we saw it come true, is as a general rule, bears don't, they don't, they're not hungry for human flesh, okay? Especially me. This is kind of bones there anyway, but, but, uh, they're not looking to hunt human beings. And for the most part, they're shy. Even the grizzlies, I mean, you see one, most of the time they're going to turn around and run away. Except if there are cubs around. The moment there are cubs around, this bear that otherwise would just be kind of shy and would want to leave you alone, the moment there's cubs, this same bear that was shy just before, there's cubs in the, in the area now, this mama bear, and she suddenly becomes this raging beast. And we had, uh, I actually had a, I was on a crew one year and a few of the guys were at this one block, they were planting some trees. At the end of the day, they got into this big GMC Suburban and they were just leaving. And as they were leaving, there was some, some uh, cubs or whatever. And a mother grizzly bear actually took on this big GMC Suburban. It's a good thing they were all inside. And they were trying to drive away. And this grizzly bear was so furious, she just ran at the Suburban to like take it on. And that's the fury of a mama grizzly bear. She's not a crazy, hateful bear. It's she likes her cubs. <laughs> and that's a very good picture for you to think of God when you're interacting with children. He is a very loving, merciful God. But you don't want to touch his little ones. It makes, it, it enrages him. And so he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And now there's an interesting point here. He says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father in heaven. There's this popular notion in the culture that kids have angels watching over them. Now, usually when I talk about popular notions in our culture in a message, I'm telling you that the popular notion is wrong. In this case, it's right. Jesus clearly says in this passage, the little ones, for I tell you in heaven, their angels Every child on planet earth has a specific angel. At least one. Maybe it's more. But it has at least one angel specifically assigned to always watching over him or who. Him or her. Everyone. Now, I'll, I know I'm going to get some questions. I'm, I want to save myself about 150 emails this week. This week. Some of you are thinking, well, do, do I still have, do we still have adults? Do we have an angel still with us? And so here's my answer. I don't know, okay? I don't know. It's very feasible. I, I mean, you say, well, what age are you not a kid? At what age do you lose your angel? I don't know, okay? <laughs> maybe we have them. I mean, it seems very feasible that we have an angel all of our lives. I, maybe I have one. I've had him all my life. I look forward to meeting him, okay? And, and you have one that's very feasible, but the Bible doesn't actually specifically talk about adults, so I can't say. But for sure, every kid has an angel watching over all the time. And those angels, there's something special about them. They have access to God that not every angel has. Because it says their angels, so not all angels have this, but their angels, the angels of these little ones, always see the face of my Father in heaven. What that means, it's talking about accessor. Always see my face. They can interrupt God at any time. They can bring a petition anytime. An update. In other words, God's attention is always, always on these kids. And every child has got an angel always watching over them, and God's attention is always on them. And so as a result of that, Jesus gives a warning. He says, think about that. See that you do not despise He's not even talking about overt abuse here. Obviously, overt abuse would be covered by that too, certainly. But he says, don't even dare to despise one of these little ones because there's an angel watching over them all the time and God's attention is on them all the time. 
And he's like a mama grizzly bear with his kids. So many of us despise, we, we, we think little of this. I mean, the Greek word there for despise, by the way, I just want to show you this, is uh, kataphroneo, which literally means, it just means to think nothing of someone. And many of us as adults, whether you're a coach or a teacher or whoever, or you're just some crusty old codger, okay, who doesn't like kids and you're just grumpy. Um, but, uh, you know, we might think nothing of, you know, just offhand insult to a kid, to trample on a kid, to shame or humiliate a kid. That's disdain, to think nothing of. That's what the word there is. And we might not think, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. They just need to grow up. They need to take it. They deserved it, whatever it is. The shaming, the humiliation, whatever it is. And Jesus says, take care. See that you do not do things like that because their angels are always watching, which means you're being watched and an account is being kept. Are you kind or are you despising? Now, I want to take some time here too. I want to actually name out three big sins towards kids because I, I just feel like the Holy Spirit is giving people opportunity this weekend that there are people here in these services that need to repent of these things and he is merciful and he can forgive. And I just want to name them out. The first one is child pornography. You might be here today and you're a person who has looked at child pornography or are looking at child pornography. Okay? I want to tell you right now, first of all, it's not, it's not all hope is not gone. The fact that you're still alive means all hope is not gone. God can forgive anything, even that. He can forgive. But you must repent. And when I say repent, I don't mean go home and quietly make a vow to yourself that you won't do it again because you'll just keep doing it. I'm saying you go to someone, you phone up someone from the church this week or whoever it is, and you tell them out loud and you repent with tears and humility. Then you smash everything in your house that could pull you back into that. But you stop the behavior. It's not enough to just feel bad here today. You stop the behavior because I want you to remember the millstone around the neck. God is very serious about behavior that harms children, takes advantage of children. So it might be child pornography. You might be here today and you're an angry, abusive person. And you've hidden it well. You smile when you come to church. But at home, you lash out at your kids with your fists or even with your words. You might justify and say, well, I'm not one of those who physically abuses my kids. But you lash out with your words. And you justify, well, I just have a bit of a temper problem. Sometimes it gets a little bit away from me. Today I'm here to tell you, stop rationalizing it. Their angels in heaven always see the face of the Father. God is watching and he says, don't justify that. Your behavior towards children. You need, this is what I'm telling you today. Again, God can forgive you. He's merciful, but you must repent. And I'm telling you today, don't just go home and say in your heart, I'm not going to do it anymore. You humble yourself. You go and you tell someone, and then you make sure the behavior stops. You repent with weeping and tears, and then you stop. Because you are in danger of encountering the wrath of God. And the third thing is, is abortion. I shudder, I shudder to think of the wrath that is being stored up for our country on this issue alone. In this same passage, verse 14, Matthew 18, Jesus says this, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one, not even one, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So God is angry over one baby that gets, that gets murdered. But in Canada and the U.S., we have butchered 50 million since the 1970s. And I shudder to think of the tens of thousands of doctors and nurses who've been involved in this, the university profs teaching this, 
the school counselors who recommend to young girls to do this, if you are here today and you've been a part of that system, you need to repent. If you're here today and you're a woman and you've gotten an abortion, guess what? Again, God, 1 John 1, 8, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. He can forgive abortion too. He can forgive any sin if you will repent. But we must, you must repent with tears and humility and you must turn from it and do not participate in that system. Wrath will come on our country someday. There's no question. It is coming. But you can save yourself on this one by not being a part of this anymore. You know, it says in Psalms 139 that God plays an intimate role in how each baby is formed in the womb. Psalm 139 verse 13, for you, that's God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, inside the womb already. Inside. God is very passionate about kids. You want to know one of the reasons he's very passionate about kids? Is because each kid he made, he poured his creativity and his love into that kid. That kid is a unique masterpiece. And we have this very naturalistic worldview in, in you know, Westerners. We have a very naturalistic worldview. We have this idea like God made the universe and he put these laws in there like uh, gravity and all these different laws. And by the way, I'm going to have a whole message about this in spring. I'm going to do a series. Um, and one of them I'm going to touch on this point about naturalism and how God works with creation. But we have this idea that God made the universe and then he put the laws in motion and now he just watches the laws work. But the Bible actually tells us that God is not watching the universe work and all the natural laws. It says that he's actually actively involved in making things happen. Everything from weather to whatever is God intimately involved in his creation. And when it comes to babies, we have this idea like sperm and egg like this and then the natural processes take over and God is just watching and then after nine months, a baby comes out and he goes, cool, that one was blonde. Sweet. That one was a boy. And God is just watching this. No, false. He, from day one, is not watching this process take place. He's doing it. So sperm and egg come together, and from that very moment, it's God personally involved knitting together. He says, I'm going to take this gene and this gene. I'm going to turn this one off. I'm going to express this one. I'm going to put it together. And he, for nine months in the womb, is intimately involved. It's not some random process of these things coming together. He's doing it. Forming in the womb a unique person that has, and there's never been one like before, there's never going to be one like after. Each one of you here today, your talents, your abilities, your intelligence or lack thereof, or whatever it is, how you look, your hair color, when you go bald, all of those things, how your genes came together was all specifically put together. God, there's no accidents. And so, of course, God loves kids because each kid he poured his creativity and his love into that kid, exactly making what he wanted to make. And this is why whenever a child is born, that's actually a gift. It's not just a gift to the family. It's God's gift to the world. It's another masterpiece. He puts a masterpiece together. Here's another masterpiece for the world. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So every child, God's masterpiece, another one for the world. God loves kids. Well, I'm going to move to the second pillar that I wanted to talk about today. And that is this, because children are so valuable to God and each child specifically, individually formed by God, this means that families are intensely important to God because it's in families that child's, children are raised. It's in families. 
And so there's a huge priority on the family. So the second pillar I want to say is this. The family is the primary place where kids are turned to or from God. The family is the primary place where kids are turned to or from God. We have this idea. I hear uh, parents blaming the culture. Oh, the, the reason our kids aren't turned for God is because of the culture. Yeah, I know. The culture obviously wants to eat up your kids and chew them up and spit them out. But it's, it's not the culture that's doing it. It's the parenting. It's in the family that kids are turned to or from God. It's in the family. And God has a huge priority on the family because he loves each kid. He makes a kid. And he puts together exactly the human being he wants and then he places him in a family. And he says, now this family, oh, huge priority there. Take care of this little baby I just gave you. Take care of him. I want to read you a child-rearing manifesto from Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is the most important commandment. And it's the most important thing you can teach your kids. And you don't teach that with your words. You teach it with your life. I mean, you do it with your words too, but you teach it with your life. Most important thing you can teach your kids. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently, now I want you to notice this, to your children. I want you to notice there, it does not say, you shall teach them diligently to your students, to your youth members, to your church members. It's not what it says. Okay? And the reason is, see, we have this idea that the church is supposed to train up our kids to be godly. God says the family is where kids get trained up to be godly. So many Christian parents today, I'll tell you where we go wrong. There's a huge priority thing that we have all messed up. Here's what we think. Many Christian parents today think their primary responsibility is to feed their kids, clothe their kids, and get them involved in all kinds of activities. You know, dance and hockey and music and all sorts of stuff. And I'm specifically naming things to make some of you mad, okay? And it's not that those things are bad. I'm sure it's working already, judging by the lack of laughter in this service. But... um. <laughs> It's not that these things are bad. I mean, my oldest daughter, Joy, she's in music, okay? It's not bad to have your kids in activities. But we think our job is feed them, clothe them, get them in all these activities to make them a well-rounded child, and then the church will train them up to be godly. False. God does not say the church is supposed to raise kids up to be godly. The Bible says that our primary job as parents, we are supposed to teach our kids diligently to love God. It's not the church. Our primary responsibility is not to turn out, you know, I saw there's this parenting magazine, just about literally, I'm not trying to be crass, it made me want to throw up. I saw a parenting magazine, a secular parenting magazine recently with a big, uh, the, the front page article, it was uh, how to raise the next Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is, is the guy who just died recently. He made Apple computers and stuff, what it was. And I thought to myself, how disgusting is that? He was rich, he was smart. He built a great company and sold lots of you here today phones and everything else, okay? But if you read anything about his life, he was nasty to people. He didn't believe in God. He was a terrible person in most ways, in character and all kinds of things. And then we put uh, this article together, raise the next Steve Jobs. And that's what we think as parents. We're just supposed to raise someone successful and hopefully the church will help them become a little godly. Our job as parents is not to raise the next Steve Jobs or the next Wayne Gretzky. We're not here to raise professional hockey players or whatever else. We're here to raise godly kids. 
God didn't put this baby together in a womb for nine months. Women, I mean, you of all people should know this. Nine months you go through of that. And then at the end, oh, you know, that's not, you know, that's not good stuff. And then <laughs> I've been through three of them now. Okay, I'm glad I'm a man. Okay, thank God. But, um, you know, nine months he puts his baby together and he's going, now, who's going to turn this kid into a hockey player? Oh, let's put him there. He says, I want this kid to live with me for eternity. I'm putting him in a family to raise for me. That's bad to get your kid in hockey or all this sort of stuff. No, it's not that the activities are bad. The point is, our job is to raise godly kids, not just activity-filled kids. It's not the church. It's the home, and shall talk of them. Keep reading here. When you sit in your house, it does not say school or church. It's because it's the family where godly kids are raised. In your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down, it's when you go to bed, and when you rise, when you get up in the morning, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All of those things, you look at this whole passage, almost none of them can be done in the church. It's all stuff that's done in the home. You can't contract out your kids that someone else will raise them to be godly. And of course, I'm a huge believer in the church, obviously. I love the church. We've got amazing youth workers here and kidsmen workers, and they're ministering to kids. But that is a secondary. We're here to support. We're here to, to help make the teaching you're already doing, the example you're already setting for your kids. Then they come here on a weekend or in youth, and we just, we just reinforce it, and we encourage it, and we help you as a parent. That's our job. But the primary responsibility for turning a kid out to be godly is the parent's. And this is why we're at one out of three or one out of five only success rate here in North America because we've got lots of nice Christians who go to church, but your, your kids will see through it if it's not the real thing. They'll see through it. They're with you for 18 years. If you just take them to church once a week and drop them off at youth once a week and you think that talking about God there in, and that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then they see what loving God looks like and what it looks like to them is you actually just love your career and you actually are just obsessed with sports, and you follow all the same things that non-Christians do, and they go, well, the religious part is just window dressing. Why would I follow that? See, in, it's in the home where your example reinforces what's being taught in a church. And you show kids a vibrant relationship with God. You know, when I was 18, there was no way I could walk away from God. I grew up in a home where mom and dad heard God's voice. I saw miracles. I saw God do stuff. I saw God change their lives. I saw them actually loving God. It was real. It's not like at 18 I went, I wonder if God's real. I should go experiment with some other stuff. I knew God was real. And I didn't know him because of the church. I got built up in the church, yes. But I knew him because of what I saw in the home. It's the same with all families today. It's in the home. I want you to notice something else here in this passage. Raising godly kids is going to take time. Raising godly kids is not something, it's not just a drive-through thing. You know, I'll, I'll throw in this video or I'll drop them off at this program. I want you to notice how much time this takes. You will teach them diligently to your kids, not once a week or once every blue moon or whatever. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house. You'll actually have to sit down and have some meals together. You will talk about them when they go to bed. You will talk about them when they get up. This is a time-intensive daily regimen. You living for God day after day after day and passing that godliness and pressing it onto your kids. I'm a, a growing up a, a pastor's kid, a PK, we always called ourselves, and, and uh, knowing lots of other PKs, pastor kids. 
And uh, I've seen pastor kids uh, turned off from God and bitter with the church and mad at God and all sorts of stuff, mad at their parents because mom and dad were always gone ministering to other people and weren't ever around to love them. And one of the things, because this is a time-intensive thing. This is a time-intensive thing. And one of the things that blessed me the most in our family growing up at the time, I didn't realize it was a blessing, but uh, when I was a kid growing up for years, we actually delivered papers together as a family. Uh, and many of you know it's an old story. It's an old Dirksen story. It's been told before. But, but uh, you know, my, my mom and dad, we did a church plant there in Woodstock, Ontario, and, and there wasn't many people there. And so salary was not enough to do everything, okay? And so we got a paper out with over 400 papers, okay? And this is how we paid for our van. We had a van, one vehicle, paid for with paper money, and we paid for a two-week vacation every year in Tobermory. We paid for all of that with newspaper money, okay? Plus, mom and dad did one other thing, which was, you know, I mean, it's really genius when you think about it, but they would dress uh, us kids up there at Christmas, and we'd go door-to-door saying Merry Christmas to all of our newspaper uh, uh, customers, and we would get thousands of dollars of tips. It was so cool. Oh, look at these cute little kids. <laughs> Mom and dad would be back in the van. But anyway, that's another story. But anyway, <laughs> no, so shameless, but good. But, um, but anyway, so we would get up every morning. We got up every morning, five o'clock, Monday through Saturday, not Sundays. We, did, we didn't have to deliver papers. The London Free Press is what we delivered. But every morning we'd get up five o'clock, no later, and we'd all pack in the van, and then we all had our routes and stuff, and we would deliver over 400 papers. And, but then afterwards, we would sit down, and we'd always have a big breakfast together. And we ate meals together, and we had suppers together, and family devotion times. And, and Dad, I mean, many of you know now with Pastor Ray, I mean, he works uh, humongous hours now, but he didn't do that when we were kids. He did not do that when we were kids. And so we had lots of time together. This is a time-intensive command. You've got to be with your kids to make this happen. And that means we've got to make our families a priority. And so now in this last point in this message, I want to hit an over-spiritualization. And now I'm really speaking to young people here today especially. I want to hit a lie. Before you make this mistake, I want to hit an over-spiritualization. And by the, when I say it, I'm not picking anyone out as bad. I've heard this over-spiritualization. I've heard this lie at conferences. I've heard major church leaders say it more than once. And I've heard some young people in this church say it in their zeal. And the people who say this kind of stuff are not bad people. It's exactly the good people who say it. I mean, different churches have different problems. You've got some churches with a zeal problem and some people with an apathy problem. I like the zeal problem. Okay? But sometimes the young people, zeal can get divorced from what is actually wisdom and what's actually in the Bible. And one of the over-spiritualizations that I sometimes hear, and I want to nip it in the bud in this series, is this over-spiritualization that I'm going to do, I need to do more ministry, so I'm going to sacrifice my family, or I'm going to sacrifice my marriage so that I can do more ministry. And if I do more ministry for God and more kingdom work, he'll take care of my family. It just sounds so good, doesn't it? And the people who say it are well-meaning but they're on a path to disaster. Like I said, I know PKs who are away from God now. And they think, I just, I gotta do more ministry for God, more sacrifice, and I'll sacrifice my family. And if I sacrifice my family, God will take care of them. It's not in the Bible. I'm gonna show you some passages, but I want you first to look at Deuteronomy 6 here. Your primary ministry is your family. Look at this. You will teach them diligently to your children. If you leave your children alone to go and minister to someone else's, who's going to minister to yours? Your primary ministry is your family, your wife, your husband, your kids. You will teach them diligently to your children in your house when you lie down, when you rise in your house. 
Your primary ministry, young people, your primary ministry when you get married and when you have a family, your primary ministry is your family. Primary ministry is your family. And of course, I'm not saying, I'm going to show you a passage in just a moment. I'm not saying that you don't do ministry outside your family. I'm not saying that now, you know, it's family night, six nights a week. No. I'm not talking about where you just get so inward focused and selfish and you don't do any ministry. You're going to turn out bad kids that way too. I'm not talking about that at all. I believe heavily in doing ministry. You've got to be active in the local church. Uh, Apostle Alex had an awesome message about a month ago. And my wife and I believe in that. LaDawn, my wife, uh, we've got three kids. She's homeschooling. And, uh, on, and on top of that, she runs a Selah Moms Ministry for moms and, and kids uh, here at the church two days a week. And it's growing. She's been doing this for a few years. She puts in way over 20 hours volunteer every week. Way over. And in addition to that, we've got a big cell for families. Lots and lots and lots and lots of kids. I can't even count them. I don't even bother to try to remember their names anymore. I'm just doing good to remember the dads. And, uh, but we've got a big cell on Tuesdays and we're ministering to them and meeting with people and building relationships, all sorts of stuff. I believe in doing ministry in the church. You've got to do it. You don't do that, you're going to tur- turn, you know, turn out some worldly kids too. But you don't sacrifice the primary ministry so you can do secondary ministry. You've got to do both, but you've got to keep them in order. You've got to keep them in order. And so there's this idea, well, if I take care of God's kingdom, he'll take care of my family. The Bible actually teaches the exact opposite. Let's go to Ephesians 5, 25 to 28. Ephesians 5, 25 to 28. Let's read this. Husbands, if you love the church, Christ will love your wife. Does none of you know how to read? Does not say that, does it? Does not say, husbands, if you love the church, Jesus will love your wife for you. No. It says, husbands, love your wives, and Christ will love the church. It sounds so spiritual when I hear this kind of stuff. Well, I, you know, my wife and I don't have much time together because I'm doing so much ministry. I just, but I trust. You know, when I go into this ministry, I just trust God's going to take care of my wife. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Jesus says to you, my job is to take care of the church. Your job is to take care of your wife. And yes, you should serve in the church. Most certainly, that's a command in the Bible, and it's a very important part of family life and life in general. You've got to advance God's kingdom outside your family. But you do that after you've taken care of your first ministry. If you will take care of your family, Jesus will take care of the church. Amen? Now, let me give you something to hang on here, because uh, you gotta, sometimes you just got to put numbers to this just to help you a little bit here, okay? Last weekend, I was on a marriage retreat, okay? And that marriage retreat is ridiculously awesome, okay? LaDonna and I went last week. It was amazing, okay? If you're here today and you are not married, I say it again, you should get married just so you can go on that retreat. It's that good. <laughs> and if you're here today and you're married and you haven't gone on a retreat, sign up for that retreat. I have read, my wife and I love reading marriage books together and all sorts of stuff. I love that stuff. We love doing that t- together. LaDonna and I, we just get along so well. I love her. And, uh, but out of all the stuff we've ever taken or done, that marriage retreat is far and away the best thing we ever did. It is so specific and so helpful for your marriage. It's not generalizations. It's for your marriage. Uh, it's amazing. But one of the sessions as Pastor Ray was teaching uh, last week that really just stood out, it was amazing, is they've done research, they've ton, done tons of studies and stuff, and they've found that for the average couple, okay, the average married couple, it takes a minimum, a minimum of 10 to 15 hours of together, quality together time. I'm, quality together time is not, uh, you know, yelling at your kids while you're in the same room, okay? It's not, you know, 
uh, you know, just being in the same place. But it takes a minimum of 10 to 15 time, hours together time where you're talking, you're conversing, you're, you're out for a walk together, you're playing a game together, whatever it is. You're doing things together, but it takes a minimum 10 to 15 hours a week together time to build and maintain passionate oneness and intimacy in a marriage. I want you to think about that for a moment. In fact, I would love it if you wrote it down. I, w- I challenge you to write it down. Write down that number 10 or 10 to 15, whatever you want to do. Write it down. And I would challenge you to go home and start counting. And I'm not going to go into all the details about everything else. I mean, the retreat really fleshes that out. Fleshes it out amazingly. But I would challenge you to go home this week and see where you're at because I know that many, probably the vast majority of marriages, they're not even touching that. And that's why our marriages are so pathetic and we're raising these kids who are pathetic. But if you're doing so much ministry and so much work and you've got so many hobbies and guys' nights out and girls' nights out and it's all good stuff, I'm not talking about sinful stuff, but you're so busy with all that stuff and maybe part of it's ministry that you only have two or three or four or five hours left over for your wife or your husband every week, I'm telling you right now, you've got your priorities all messed up. If you're doing so much ministry that you've only got two, three, four, five hours left with your wife, guys, you're doing the wrong ministry. You're sacrificing the wrong things. Do you need to make sacrifices in order to do ministry in the church? Most certainly. I believe in it. LaDawn and I have had to make lots of sacrifices to get all the ministry done we want to do. So we hardly watch TV. I used to be a sports fanatic. I used to follow baseball, hockey, and football. I'm down to one. I'm down to football. I'm hanging on to that one. I just like it. But anyway. (laughs) I don't read nearly as many books as I wish I could. Lots of books I don't get to. There's lots of guys' nights I don't get out to. I don't play nearly as much ping pong as I would if I was single. I mean, the list goes on and on. Are they big sacrifices? They're not huge sacrifices, but there's lots of time I don't have time for because I've got to sacrifice to do ministry. But I don't sacrifice my family to do ministry because they are my primary ministry. Do you hear me? I don't sacrifice... I, well, Ladon, sorry. I know I promised to love you all my life, but I only have two hours for you because I've got to love these other people. It's the wrong order. It is the wrong order. It'll lead to disaster. It says here, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loves the church a lot, doesn't he? He died for the church. Guys, that means you have to die to meet your wife's needs, her emotional needs, her physical needs. You die to meet those things. This means, by the way, and I just want to say this too, because there's these over-spiritualizations. People have this idea, well, you know, me and my wife, and, and we just, we do ministry together and we don't have fun and we don't really have dates or stuff like that because we, we we're too busy doing the important stuff. Let me tell you something. Okay, we think of spiritual stuff as uh, I'm in the church serving. I'm on the streets telling someone about God. I'm praying about f- and fasting. That's spiritual, but doing something romantic for my wife or spending money on her or getting her a gift or some flowers, that's not spiritual. You know what you gotta do? You gotta take this over here and you gotta put it over here. It is spiritual. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That means romance is spiritual. You're going to meet her needs for love. He made her to need that. So you meet that need and you love her and you don't over-spiritualize this away. This bare bones approach is I love it to a certain extent. I love the zeal I see where people say we're going to live a very, uh, you know, in this box financially and we're going to give all the rest to God's kingdom. I love that. Me and LaDonna are all over that. I love to give money to this church. I love it. We have given way beyond, and I don't say it to brag, I won't tell you the exact number, it doesn't matter, and I don't, it's not bragging anyway, many of you give even more, I bet. But we have given way, 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 way over 10% for years, and we would never want to lessen it. We love it. But this idea that I'm going to live so bare bones that I can't take my wife out for a, for a date, 
because that wouldn't be spiritual. We just do ministry together. Or I can't buy her something special to make her feel special. That is balderdash. And those of you who are young people, you remember that I said that. (laughs) If you want to aspire to a marriage, you know whose marriage you should aspire to, young people? Aspire to Pastor Ray and Fran. My mom and dad, I've got to observe them all my life, 38 years. They do not have a bare bones relationship. They are passionate. They're not just, we like each other and we do ministry together and we've sacrificed for God. They are passionately in love with each other. And you know what? That draws people to Jesus. I've never seen a better marriage. They, and they do stuff together. Every Monday, they spend the whole day together. They date. Sunday nights, they're doing stuff. They love to hang out. They do romantic stuff, all that sort of stuff. They do it. They have a red, hot, white, hot, whatever you want to call it. They got, I mean, sometimes it's gross as a kid, especially. Like, Ugh. Yeah. That's a marriage. It's not just this sparse, bare bones thing that this is more spiritual. No, 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 no. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. You love her. And women, you're saying, yeah, get them, get them, get them. Okay? <laughs> this applies to you too. But it's easier for you because he only wants one thing. Okay? I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you don't got to worry about the romance and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, Luke 14, 26. Some of you might be sitting there and you're thinking... But isn't there a verse in the Bible that says you got to leave your wife and your kids behind so you can follow Jesus? Isn't there a verse about that in the Bible? Well, there's a famous verse, and it is sometimes misused. Let's look at it. Luke 14, 26 says this. If anyone comes to me, Jesus speaking here, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And this is a, this is a sometimes misused passage. And people will take this in their zeal, and they'll divorce it from the rest of Scripture, and they'll make it say something it's, Jesus is not saying. And I was one of those people. You know who often takes this verse out of context is young adult males, okay? And they're, and they're not even married. They're not married. So I remember I, I misused this passage. I remember being a cell leader and young adults and stuff before I was married, and we would get all worked up about this passage. Oh, we got to leave everything. We had nothing to leave. <laughs> it was easy for, it's easy for people who have nothing to leave to preach about leaving it. And we preach, we've got to just leave our families and all sort of stuff. And this passage is not talking about you doing so much ministry that you can't minister to your family. I already showed you, your family is your primary ministry. You do both, primary and secondary, but you don't, you don't do secondary at the expense of the primary. But this passage isn't talking about doing ministry. This passage is talking about loyalty. And in many parts of the world, people actually have to pass this test to become a Christian. There are many parts of the world right now in persecuted countries where if a person accepts Jesus, they can lose their life and for sure they'll get disowned from their whole family. In fact, if you're a woman in some Muslim countries, your husband might be the one to kill you if you accept Christ. And so you actually literally have to leave everything in order to get Jesus. And to those people, Jesus says this verse. He says, your loyalty still has to be to me. If you're going to follow Jesus, your loyalty must be to him. And if that means... That following him and loving him means your family leaves you because they can't stand Jesus. You've got to follow Jesus anyway. By the way, I know people in this church, I know people in this church, spouses have left them because they love Jesus. That's what this verse is talking about. Your family leaves you because you love Jesus. Okay? This passage is not talking about you leave your family to minister to other people. Do you see the difference? That's not loving Jesus. To not to neglect your family in order to minister to other people does not mean you love Jesus more than you love your family. It means you love other people more than your family. This passage is talking about loyalty. It means if your family is going to leave you, 
you've still got to follow Jesus. But if you don't neglect your family in order to minister to others, look at what Jesus says elsewhere, Matthew 19. He affirms the family. Again, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I want you to notice here, it does not say a man shall leave his wife and his kids and hold fast to his ministry and the two will become one flesh. It also does not say, therefore a man shall leave his wife and his kids and hold fast to his career and the two shall become one flesh or his hobbies, or whatever. It says a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Then it goes on to say, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Don't even let over-spiritualizations separate you. When you're following Jesus, he's going to send you right back into your family to do ministry to your family. And again, I affirm again and again and again, I'm not saying we don't do ministry outside the family. Both are needed, but in their order. In their order. Now, some of you might be say, sitting there and you're saying, well, are there ever any exceptions? Are there ever any exceptions where a person has to leave their family in order to do ministry or whatever? And yes, there are. There are exceptions. There are places where persecution is awful and different things. I even think of Alex Matala sharing from Uganda there. Some of these pastors that go into some of these horrid areas and they actually have to leave their kids behind. And they, they let Al- Alex and Back to the Bible Truths raise their kids for a big portion of the year. There are extreme circumstances where in order to advance the kingdom and the gospel and to save people from hell, that God calls people, they sometimes have to leave their families for a season and do ministry elsewhere. And yes, I believe in those cases that God's grace is enough. He comes in here like this. And we should honor those people. Yes, they have made huge, that is a huge sacrifice. I can't think of a bigger one. I think I'd rather give my life up than sacrifice a family like that. I mean, It's huge. We need to honor those people. But we need to remember this. Those are the exceptions, not the rule. They're the exceptions, not the rule. God designed the family as the place where those kids he loves so much, he puts this kid together in the womb and he wants someone to raise this kid to be godly and he puts them in the family to do that. And so it's in the family. That's the primary ministry. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we call out to you. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom in this thing of parenting. God, I pray again in this church, these families here in this church, Lord, we are not praying for one out of three or one out of five to follow you. We are praying for 100%. But in order to have 100%, Lord, we must be devoted to you 100%. Father, we devote ourselves to you as parents and as a church. Father, I pray that you would Give us courage to do what we need to do in order to raise godly kids, even if that means not doing what everyone else around us is doing. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to get our priorities straight. We are not raising childhood geniuses. That's not our primary job. We're not raising sports stars or doctors. They may become some of those things, but we are primarily trying to raise godly kids. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.